Open is supported by Renaissance Bank. The support of partners like Renaissance Bank allows us to bring you high-quality journalism. Almost two weeks after Liochi disappeared, investigators in her case finally got a lead. On September 9, 1992, a package containing Lee's glasses showed up at her house on Honey Locust Drive. The glasses were one of three items reported missing from the house on the day that she went missing. Lee wore them pretty much every day. I'm Emma Kent, and this is Open, the case of Liochi, a podcast from the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal exploring what we know and what we still don't about the disappearance of Lee Ochi 25 years ago. In this episode, we'll look at developments in the Ochi case and a few persons of interest. The most significant lead investigators received was the return of Lee's glasses. They arrived in an envelope postmarked in Boonville, which is a small town about 30 miles north of Tupelo. There were a couple of strange things about this development. First, the envelope had 629 cent stamps on it, almost twice what was necessary. The stamps each had the word love and a heart on them. The envelope was also addressed to Lee's stepfather, Barney Yarborough, and the address was misspelled. But Barney and Vicky were separated at that time, and Barney wasn't even living at the Honey Locust Drive house. The name on the package was abbreviated. It read B. Yarborough, which is how Barney was listed in the Tupelo phone book at the time. Whoever sent the package also used Barney's name and the Honey Locust Drive address as the return address. There was no note in the envelope, only the glasses. In an article he wrote for the Daily Journal at the time, Rick Hammond described investigators as confident that the glasses would give them clues about Lee's whereabouts. At the same time, Hammond said he remembers police being puzzled by the whole thing. It was an odd development because um, she wore those glasses all the time. And after, you know, two weeks of her being gone and really the investigation reaching a standstill at that point, all of a sudden they showed up in the mail. I got the impression, and it wasn't anything that any officer said directly, but I got the impression that they felt like um, whoever was responsible was playing games with them. Tupelo Police Chief Bartagiri, who was then a detective on the Ochi case, thinks the glasses were sent to throw police off. I don't know uh, what kind of message uh, it, it sent to the, to the rest of the community, uh, but there was no ransom letter or anything like that, that that you know came with those glasses it was just the glasses if it was uh, an actual kidnapping or something like that uh, you would have expected a little more to come along with that the glasses being mailed from Boonville did fit with another lead police had gotten a few days earlier on September 5th a college student named Philip Copeland was working at a McDonald's in Boonville and claimed to have seen Lee in a blue pickup truck with an older African-American man. Copeland said the truck came through the drive-thru, and he described the girl as seeming distressed and having blonde hair that looked like it hadn't been washed in several days. Police tracked the truck down and determined it wasn't Lee that Copeland had seen that day. By that point, Rick said police and Lee's family members were growing increasingly frustrated with the investigation. It really wasn't their fault. 
Um, but there were there was no new evidence. There were no new clues. There were no new witnesses coming forward. Um, and so I think there was um, just naturally a lot of frustration because everybody in the community wanted to know what had happened and, um, you know, what what could be proven was really very little at that point. When Lee's glasses arrived in the mail, police thought things were looking up. Tupelo Police Department investigators mailed the glasses and the envelope to the Mississippi State Crime Lab, where the items were examined for evidence. Experts at the crime lab performed handwriting analysis and DNA tests. To quote Rick's writing at the time, officials believed a major break in the case would come from those results. Police were hopeful the tests would give them fingerprints, hair carpet fabric fibers, and saliva to point them toward a suspect. Weeks later, results of those tests had little insight to offer. They tracked it down and, and uh, as best they could, but uh, there just wasn't a whole lot of information they were, were able to obtain from it. I think they did find out that the classes were mailed from Boonville. There wasn't a whole lot of other information. I think Vicki was able to say, yes, those are Lee's glasses. This became a pattern in the Ochi case. There were tips and sightings and searches, but nothing that helped police make progress in the case. The leads investigators received just never seemed to pan out. We did uh, search after search. We organized search parties. Uh, um, Lee's daddy was in the military, and he came to Tupelo, and he organized his own search party. Um, we even had uh, our own helicopter at that time, and uh, we would search from the air as well as um, uh, getting search parties to search fields. Uh, we looked at lakes and uh, just anything that we could possibly get. We uh, had people calling in and, and saying that they had sightings uh, over around the 10 Tom waterway, you know, or they've, they've seen um, maybe somebody that looked like Lee and she was shopping at a mall over in Birmingham, Alabama, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the, the information, the flow of information was continually to come in and we were trying to follow up on everything that was sent to us. I asked Chief Aguirre how the police handled the influx of tips being called into the department. Because Joanne said she called the police in the days following Lee's disappearance to tell them she had seen a young girl and a man that day, but no one ever called her back. I called, at that time, I don't remember there being a tip line, so I think I called the non-emergency number, and the person I talked to said somebody would get back with me. I told them just a few details, not everything, but um, nobody ever got back with me. And then, you know, of course I had a small baby at the house, so that wasn't the fourth thing on my mind, you know, I had other things on my mind other than this. And so I didn't follow up again till weeks later and got told the very same thing. Aguirre said at that time, all calls to the police department were taken by a desk officer who then passed the messages along to the appropriate person. All of these calls were coming into the main police headquarters and then the desk officer that day would take these messages and either forward them to our detectives division or they'll take a note and we would return their calls uh, later on. We were very fortunate to, to get our local FBI involved in this case and they assisted us uh, with uh, getting that information out and 
given us whatever resources they had, uh, you know, in order to to help find Lee. To me, Joanne's call seemed like one that would have been acted on, a sighting of a girl matching Lee's description in Lee's neighborhood during the window of time police thought that the crime took place. After the glasses, the trail in the Leochi case kind of just went cold. So, and then the case just comes to kind of a stop, right? I mean, if you stop getting new information, is that kind of what happened? Y'all just... Well, it's just hard to get information to go off of. It, it's hard to to go any further with it once you're at a, a dead end like that. Right. Um, it, it doesn't stop, though, because you're still um, trying to get information from from Vicki or from her dad or whoever. In late 1993, a body was found in Monroe County, about 30 miles south of Tupelo. Initially, it was identified as Leochi, but the state medical examiner had to recant days later. Some farmers had found the skull in a small assortment of other bones in a soybean field. The skeletal remains were formally identified as Lee using dental records, but the medical examiner's office retracted the ID two days later. The initial ID was made using limited skeletal remains, but the discovery of additional bones proved the remains were those of someone older. They were later correctly identified as 27-year-old Pollyanna Sue Keith, who had gone missing from nearby Shannon, Mississippi in March of 1993. For much of the past 25 years, the case has sort of hummed along with tips popping up every now and then. Police are still waiting for that big break. The most recent search for Lee was done about two years ago. The Tupelo Police Department searched a creek in the area around Lee's house using cadaver dogs. They also searched this area during the initial investigation. I'm trying to think like a a criminal here, you know. If I had to hide a body, you know, maybe the easiest way to get rid of one is, you know, try to bury it in a shallow grave under all that rocks and maybe try to hide it that way. We were told by the handler that these dogs were were so good that, uh, you know, they could pick up a scent that either, even if the body was underwater and or uh, even if the body had been buried for years under there, it still gives off a certain odor of decomposition, it gives off certain gases and that these dogs would be able to pick up. Around the time that Lee went missing, the city of Tupelo was working on the creek to help with flood controls. They were cleaning the ditch out and putting rock in it, or as Aguirre calls it, riprap. Because of the heavy rain moving through from Hurricane Andrew, work on the creek stopped for a few days. Workers stopped just near where the creek ran through Lee's backyard. So there was no riprap right there where uh, Vicky's property joined that, that ditch. And so we've, we've always wondered, you know, whether or not there could be in a shallow grave, you know, right there. Mm-hmm. You know, could a killer dispose of that body uh, in a shallow grave in that ditch and then let the the city cover it up with these rocks and everything? So uh, in 2015, we had the FBI contact somebody that was in South Carolina that the FBI uses um, that had cadaver dogs. And so we made arrangements to clear out that ditch of all the, the existing uh, rocks, the riprap, to the edge of that property and then bring the uh, cadaver dogs in and see if they could maybe pick up something. Even 
something as old as a, you know, a body that's been there 13 years. And according to the handler, he said, absolutely. He said, that is something that we can do. Uh, he said, these, these animals are amazing. Uh, they have been known to even uh, pick up um, the scent from vegetation that has grown on top of where a shallow grave has, has been and can actually smell that vegetation above there and pick up, you know, some of that, that scent. Aguirre said there wasn't a particular tip or anything that prompted investigators to go back and do the search of the creek. A criminal investigators course, which helps investigators get certified, was being taught in Tupelo at the time. The FBI was brought in to help teach the course, and they talked about the use of cadaver dogs in an old case where they were able to locate a body that had been put in a shallow grave years earlier. Aguirre said the investigator on the Ochi case at the time asked if that was something the TPD could do to research the crime scene, and they decided to go for it. It was something that was very promising. If, if her body happened to be in there, then they felt certain that the dogs would be able to find it. So when we did this, we spent uh, almost, gosh, almost probably a week out there, you know, uh, clearing the ditch of all the riprap, bringing in the, the FBI and their search team, as well as the cadaver dogs and his handler and doing the search of that area. The dogs picked up on a few spots of interest, but police were unable to recover any evidence. We came to the conclusion that uh, we don't believe that Lee was buried in or near the house. So it's more likely that someone transported? I I would think so, that she would have had to have been transported away from the house. I mean, she could have walked away from the house. Uh, We still don't know. That was the last search that's been done for Lee. Yeah, the last really major thing that we did to, in order to help trying to find her. But Yeah, it was a long shot, but hey, you know. From the beginning, investigators were suspicious of Lee's mother, Vicki Felton. If you remember in episode two, former Daily Journal reporter Rick Hammond said police spent a long time studying the timeline that Vicki gave them of her whereabouts on the morning that Lee went missing. There are a few things about her timeline that police found suspicious. Vicki told police she left the house around 7.40 a.m., arriving at work about 15 minutes later. Then she said she called home around 8.30 to check on Lee. When Lee didn't answer, Vicki got worried, left work, and went home to check on her. She got home around 8.45, found the garage door open and all the blood in the house, but she didn't call police to report Lee missing until 9 a.m. I would consider her a person of interest. Uh, you still can't you know, eliminate her. There's still, still too many unanswered questions for Vicki, and I, I don't know if that's unusual for somebody to go off to work and and say, well, I just left Lee, but I'm going to call and check on her. Why check on her that soon after she just left her? Pretty soon after Lee disappeared, Vicki, Lee's father, Donald Ochi, and Lee's stepfather, Barney Yarborough, were all given polygraph tests. Donald and Barney passed and were quickly cleared by police. Donald had been stationed in Virginia at the time of Lee's disappearance. And Aguirre said that Barney had been really cooperative and helpful during the initial investigation, so they cleared him. Despite allegations that Barney abused Lee in some way, Aguirre said they just didn't have any proof at the time to back those claims up. We never found any evidence of that. Vicki, on the other hand, showed deception on three polygraphs. We polygraphed her, 
and she failed the first one that um, that we offered her. Uh, the Tupelo Police Department offered her, mm-hmm. and and then after that, I think the FBI came in and then offered her two more. And uh, each one, I'm not saying that she failed it, but they found deception in the information that she was giving us, you know. And so we couldn't really rely a whole lot on her information. Polygraphs measure physiological reactions to questions. Things like a person's breathing rate, pulse, blood pressure, and perspiration. Those reactions are supposed to indicate whether or not a person is lying, because normally when you lie, you get nervous and your body reacts accordingly. At the beginning of a polygraph test, the examiner asks a few basic questions to get an idea of what a person's normal vital signs are like. Then, as they ask more specific questions during the test, they look for significant changes in those vitals. So showing deception would mean a major change in heart rate, breathing, or something else in response to a particular question. But polygraph tests can be fooled by the test taker, so they're not very accurate. They're not admissible in court either, so in the Ochi case, Vicky's deception didn't help investigators build a case against her. In addition to what they knew about Vicky being pretty strict and at times harsh with Lee, they also thought that some of her behavior was strange during the investigation. For example, when police arrived at the scene of the crime, she immediately told them what Lee was wearing when she went missing from the house. Aguirre told our crime reporter, William Moore, that he found this a little weird. There was the nightgown that she was last seen wearing that was left behind, and so Lee had to have been dressed or in something else. And according to the mother, she said, well, these pieces of clothing are missing from her closet. So she thinks that these pieces of clothing is what she was wearing, you know, just by the process of elimination, Mm -hmm. you know. Tell you the truth, I couldn't go to my kid's closet and tell you what's missing or, or, you know, what... And that was strange to me. But that morning, she was over there telling us what's, what's missing in that closet, which was really strange. The police weren't the only ones who found some of Vicky's behavior suspicious. Lee's father, Donald Ochi, said Vicky didn't tell him right away that Lee was missing, or about the blood found in the house, or anything. He also told me that Vicky didn't help much with the searches for Lee. How long after Lee disappeared did Vicky call you and tell you that she was missing? I think it was two days, and I don't remember. You mentioned that she said that she was, like, she had run away. Is that, what did she say? That's what she she told me. And then later, a couple days later, she told me there was blood everywhere. So, how... Not a runaway. But being meticulous or acting weird certainly doesn't make you a criminal. And without strong evidence to build a case, police didn't pursue Vicky as a suspect. Did y'all ever have suspects in this case that you really thought maybe this is it, or was it kind of just you know we really don't know? We we don't really know. Yeah. We really just never did have a a, a hard, strong suspect mm-hmm. that that we said you know we're just going to lock in on this particular person. Besides Mama, and and you know, failing uh, or, you know, not being truthful with her information uh, sure makes us suspicious, but I don't think that, you know, makes her the the prime suspect, right. you know. I know when the, the anniversary rolls around, uh, stuff like that, we, we tried to, to find out, well, 
where's uh, where's Vicky at? What's she doing? Mm-hmm. You know, where is she going uh, on on this anniversary date of her disappearance? How how is she acting today? And you know, we're just looking for any any clues that uh, that might point to any possibilities that uh, you know she could be involved or you know whether or not it's somebody else um, and we have to keep everything open so she is she considered still a person of interest uh i think so um the, you know we got uh, a town of some 30 some thousand that that uh, you know could possibly be the person of interest that uh, that did this but we just don't know Vicki is well aware that people are suspicious of her, but she's always maintained that she had nothing to do with Lee's disappearance. In August, William asked Vicki over the phone how she responds to allegations that she was involved. She simply said she doesn't. She told William she doesn't pay attention to the speculation because the people speculating don't know all of the facts. When asked what she thought happened, Vicki refused to go into detail. There's one other person police looked at as a person of interest in Lee's case, but he was never officially named a suspect. Vicki told investigators that she was convinced this man had something to do with Lee's disappearance and that after Lee vanished, he started acting strange around Vicki. His name is Oscar Kearns. Apparently, he knew Lee from church. They both attended Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Tupelo, where Kearns taught Sunday school classes and helped with vacation Bible school. He's now serving a 20-year sentence in Parchman, Mississippi State Prison, for the kidnapping of a young couple and a rape in 1999. Aguirre said with no evidence to link Kearns to the crime, their investigation of him didn't go very far. I know that at the time that we had uh, uh, our detectives that went to, I don't, I don't know where he's at, but uh, they had gone over there to interview him, mm-hmm. and he was not very cooperative and would not give any information, uh, you know, while he was incarcerated or anything he he just said I I don't want to talk to you so we left away from there without any information or anything that uh, could help us you know with our investigation. Our crime reporter William Moore did a little digging to find out more about this guy. He got court records from the two crimes Kearns committed in the 90s. Both are similar to what happens in the Ochi case but especially the first crime he was convicted of. This gentleman you know Nine months after Lee disappeared, you know, guy lives in Tupelo, was a Sunday school teacher, a vacation Bible school teacher. I mean, that's the way he knew the family was through a Lutheran church here. He drove to Memphis, went to, this, went to the house of a 15-year-old girl that he had met through the Tupelo church. You know, and under the pretext of going to take her to school, you know, he... First took her to a hotel in Memphis, then took her to a rural location in DeSoto County, raped her, and then took her back to school. You know, once I got back to school, the girl contacted police. He was quickly arrested. Uh, went to trial, or was getting ready to go to trial. He pleaded guilty. Was given 24 years, 16 suspended, so he was supposed to serve eight. He ended up serving less than half of that. And then he was released in, let's see, October of 97. About a year and a half later, he kidnapped a young couple in Union County, raped the wife in front of the husband, and then left. And a couple of days later, they police found him again 
And I mean, that's what he's been sitting in jail ever since for. William also wrote the man a letter, hoping maybe he would answer some questions about Lee. I mean, I reached out, I sent a letter to him, you know, and I asked him, all right, would you be willing to talk? All right. What was your relationship with Leochi and the Felton slash Yarbrough's? You know, when was the last time you saw her? What do you think happened? You know, uh, you know, a lot of just basic questions about, you know, his relationship with the family and how things may or may not have played out. You know, I sent a letter early July, you know, and we never heard back from him. I mean, he scheduled tentative date of releases in March of 2019. But the police don't have any reason to tie him to this. There's no real evidence tying him to Leochi's disappearance. Uh, I mean, other than the fact that, you know, he was from Tupelo. He knew the family. He rode horses at the same place that Lee liked to go riding horses just off uh, North Thomas Creek. Mm-hmm. You know, he lived a couple of miles away from the Felton's house, the, the, or the Yarborough house. You know, the, the circumstances of these cases are similar. You know, but there, there's nothing that ties him directly to Leochi's disappearance. You know, the police interviewed him at least a couple of times. You know, the, the first time they went and visited him in Parchman, tried to get him to talk, and he was sort of to the point where he was going to talk, but he was just basically, he was toying with it because he says, yeah, I'll take a, a polygraph test. If my lawyer says it's okay. Mm. And of course, as soon as they called the lawyer, said the lawyer said, no, you can't, can't do that. And then the next time, you know, sometime within the last 10 years, they went back and tried to talk to him again, and he just refused to talk to him. Next episode, we'll talk about challenges investigators have faced with the Ochi case and some things about it that just don't make sense. This episode of Open, The Case of Leochi was produced by Chris Kiefer with music by J.B. Clark. You can subscribe to Open on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit djournal.com slash openpodcasts to stream episodes and access additional content. Connect with us on Twitter at open underscore podcast or find us on Facebook. You can also contact us via email with tips, information, or just your thoughts about the show at openpodcast at journalinc.com. That's journalinc.com. Special thanks to Renaissance Bank for their support of this podcast.